Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Today, I am excited to be in conversation with Nadine Smith, the executive director of Equality Florida, which was founded in 1997 and is the state's largest organization dedicated to ending discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. Nadine, thank you so much for joining me for tea today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start each of these conversations with a foundational question. And so in this case, when we talk about what does equity for LGBTQ plus people look like, how do you define that? And where are we in terms of equity and equitable access and treatment? Well, you know, when I think of equity, I think we deserve a world, we deserve to be born into a world where we are not held back, restricted, denied, um, had additional obstacles placed in our path simply because of our sexual orientation, our gender identity. And I know growing up in the panhandle of Florida, I got the message very early on that I wasn't supposed to exist. In in fact, I remember in um, third grade, I tell people I had my first girlfriend in third grade and I know she was my first girlfriend because she told our teacher she was my girlfriend and that we were going to get married. And um, our, our teacher, who was my favorite teacher, made us stay after class, you know, and the whole class went, ooh, you know, because they thought we were in trouble. And my favorite teacher told us that girls have to marry boys and boys have to marry girls. And I remember being very upset by this news And I went up to, I used to, I told this story once and I used the real names and I don't do that anymore because I don't want to Google anybody and find out that they're, I don't know, some right wing. (laughs) Anyway, uh, so I remember going up to uh, this boy in class. I don't know, I didn't know what Gadar was, but I think I had it and this is why I picked him. I'll call him Chris. And I said, Chris, you and I are going to get married. You're going to change your last name to Smith. And Kristen is going to uh, live with us when her husband is killed in the war. And so, you know, I I used to tell that story by way of saying I was an organizer from early on around LGBT (laughs) activism. But I remember telling that story at one place and a woman just sort of stopped the presentation. She said, I just want you to know that was awful what that teacher did. That was a terrible, terrible thing that she did. And it's not that I didn't know that. But it brought tears to my eyes because I remember thinking this is this was a teacher who, you know, when you accidentally call your teacher mom because you just, you know, and it was one of the clearest articulations that I wasn't supposed to exist. If I existed, I better hide. And if I didn't hide sufficiently that any harm that was inflicted on me was my own fault. And I think that message uh, for so many of us at an early, early age, you know, just sort of 
it, it becomes part of the air that we breathe. And so when I think of equity, I think never experiencing that, you know, never having to have falling in love for the first time, have to be accompanied by the fear of what you might lose if, if anyone were to find out that you were not heterosexual. And so, so I think that it's not, it is certainly the achievement of rights under the law, but more than that, it's the freedom to exist without fear because of your identity. That's a beautiful definition. And so in terms of where you see the world now versus where you saw the world in third grade, <laughs> how, how does equity or equitable treatment look like today? Well, I, you know, I think that the challenge is that these things don't, they're not linear. We move backwards and forward on that, on that continuum. And I think right now we are in a, a moment of extraordinary uh, volatility and backlash. And, you know, it is a fear driven because we're at an inflection point as a country. We are, we are um, experiencing what demographers call the graying and browning of America, which essentially we are increasingly a a nation of older white people because healthcare disparities mean that white people live longer. And also we are a nation of young black and brown people um, in terms of you know, population numbers. And it means that America is not going to be, America will be, and in many major cities, many parts of our country already is a multiracial um, country where no single ethnic group dominates. And for people who have been accustomed to um, you know, the, whether it's recognized as privilege or not, but, you know, people who have been accustomed to a world in which the president is supposed to have my skin color and, you know, the nation, the, the freak out, it's sort of like, you couldn't have had, if we didn't have Barack Obama, we probably wouldn't have Donald Trump, right? The, the national freak out um, around the, the racial implication of a multiracial America is, um, causing people who would never think of themselves as racist, never think of themselves in, in any of this context, feel comforted by those who fully embrace, hey, we're gonna make the world the way it was. We're gonna make America great again. We're gonna pull things back to where there isn't this, this racial reckoning that's, uh, that's occurring in America. So I think that in some ways uh, we are in, the, in, a, in a very, um, dangerous moment for our country, our democracy overall, and that the backlash is both racial, we're seeing the destruction of democratic norms, we're seeing very restrictive uh, uh, laws passed like in, in Florida where it's basically criminalizing protests, and we're seeing this orchestrated attack on uh, trans young people. So all of these things are happening within a context that says we are going to go backwards to a time where uh, the majority, the white majority doesn't have to be fearful of a changing world. Well, and so I wanna drill down into this a little bit as well, because as you and I were sort of prepping for this, you know, I said, one of my questions is, you know, how did, not exactly how did we get here? And I still haven't figured out what the, what the right way to frame this is, but is this, is this based in fear? Is this a lack of knowledge or a lack of familiarity? I think I saw a news article yesterday, maybe, that um, approximately a third of the country knows someone who's transgender, and that's really changing how 
um, they're perceiving the world and the laws that are being enacted. Um, all of these seem like systemic challenges, but would just love your thoughts on kind of what's at the, what's at the root of, of these equity challenges and does that offer us a path for how we can overcome them? Well, I, I think there are two fears operating at the same time. One is the one I was discussing, which is an, a, uh, in some places articulated and other places unarticulated fear of changes in society around racial justice, racial demographics that expresses itself in fear of difference overall. Um, the other part of it though, I think is, you know, that we are a puritanical, you know, uh, not a very sex positive country by culture. You know, we have extraordinary, you know, like uh, all of the places that are most repressive also have the largest porn consumption, right? So these sort of hypocritical contradictions are so normal to us. You know, there was yet another, you know, pro-life conservative Republican who was exposed for having, I think, uh, paid for three abortions and, you know, it, it never surprises us. In fact, when you see a big, uh, the biggest homophobic law lawmaker get caught up in a, a scandal of soliciting a man for, for uh, sex with him, you don't, nobody goes, oh, I'm shocked. It's sort of like, yeah, that's, <laughs> you can almost tell what people are struggling with in their own uh, personal psyche based on who they're targeting. I don't think, you know, well-adjusted heterosexuals wake up obsessing about how they can make life hard for the LGBT. Uh, community. So those things aren't a surprise. So I do think it's, it's, it's this sort of um, larger fear of the, the racial change, the demographic change in America. But in terms of sexual orientation and gender identity, I think it is this sort of uh, repressed, um, you know, uh, sexuality that uh, ends up being you know, it's, it's the way that the far right can't make a distinction between creating safe and healthy schools for kids who are LGBT and equating that with why are we why are we sexualizing kids? It's like, well, wait a second, what's your sexual orientation and when did you know? And when did people start informing you about sexuality? Did I mean, I think there's nothing that is more discouraging towards children having sex than sex ed. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's just sort of like the clinical you know, transmission of information about sex is not sexy, but it is important. It's, it's vital to, to keep people safe and healthy. And, you know, we're seeing this explosion in, in HIV rates, you know, where Florida, I think is, you know, population wise per capita, one of the top two, uh, you know, states in terms of uh, HIV transmission. And, and so much of it flows from a, uh, you know, a puritanical ignorance uh, and hypocrisy around sexuality. Okay. Well, when we spoke uh, two weeks ago with our panel of Sharon McGowan, Rodrigo Hang Leighton, and Chris Cormier Maggiano, we talked a little bit about federal laws uh, versus state laws and even more local laws. And since you are obviously actively doing work in the state of Florida, would love to get your thoughts on that as well. You know, if there were federal laws that sufficiently covered everything that they needed to cover, would we still need the state level activism um, and possibly even more local than that? So cities or, or, or individual jurisdictions, it's, you know, since we have sort of a bifurcated 
um, legislative or legal system um, are really all of those levers necessary? If there was sort of one overarching lever, would that be sufficient? Love to get your thoughts on that. Sure. Well, I mean, when you look at how uh, non-discrimination law has evolved in America, uh, separate from whether LGBTQ protections exist in them, we do have local human rights ordinances. We do have state civil rights protections. And, and then we have federal civil rights protections because we're structured in a way that gives home rule a certain level of autonomy that is unique to each of these governing, um, you know, um, these levels of government. And so where these laws exist, sexual orientation and gender identity absolutely ought to be a part of them. And oftentimes they are unique to the very specific circumstances of those states or those local communities and go further. The ones at the local level may exceed what happens at the state level, what, what's protected at the state level and the state level may exceed what happens at the federal level. In Florida, our state civil rights law mirrors the, the federal civil rights law. I, look, I think quite literally a cut and paste. And, um, and so it is, it is fairly minimal what protections are embedded, you know, in terms of, of federal law. So there is a need to expand those protections at the federal level. Um, and we have worked to pass local human rights ordinances that include sexual orientation and gender identity. But if you were to go through, you'd find, you would find protections that reflect the, you know, the leadership in those communities. I think pregnancy was covered in, in local ordinances before it, the, those protections arrived in, in state law. Um, and often that's the case. Uh, so yes, we should be embedded everywhere that these protections are articulated, sexual orientation and gender identity ought to be included. Well, let's talk about some of the specific work that Equality Florida is doing. And I uh, noticed on your website, uh, I would say a, a very prominent affirmation in January of 2021 um, in some civil rights legislation that the Florida Commission on Human Rights affirmed anti-discrimination, I'm trying to make sure I'm framing this correctly, anti-discrimination against um, uh, based on sexual orientation or gender identity in employment, housing, and public accommodations, I think. Right. And I think this is really important for people to understand because uh, in June, almost a year ago, the Supreme Court ruled in the Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia um, case, which actually resolved multiple cases where people who had been discriminated against based on their sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, Gerald Bostock had been fired after joining a gay softball team. And uh, Amy Stevens had uh, come out as transgender, lost her job. And she died almost uh, you know, a month before the, the decision came down in her favor. And in some ways it was shocking to people because we just watched the Trump administration pack the court with with um, you know ideologues, conservative ideologues, and and so you know how this decision was going to come come down was definitely in doubt. Um, but on the other hand, it was also the sort of inevitable conclusion of the of the drumbeat of law of legal cases that had that had been building through the EEOC because people had taken their case to the EEOC even when there was very little chance of of prevailing. But as the arguments began to unfold, it's sort of like, yeah, sex discrimination is at the root of gender identity and sexual orientation discrimination. 
Uh, Suzanne Farr wrote a book, uh, Homophobia, Weapon of Sexism, that, that all of these things are tied together. And I think that the, you know, the courts began one case at a time, crystallizing that understanding. And that's reflected in a very strong opinion, a 6-3 decision by the justices that sex discrimination is sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination. So I, I think because of the context in which that ruling came down, there was a lot of, not confusion, but sort of, we don't know how to emotionally process this. <laughs> you know, how sturdy is this? What do we make of it? Uh, and you had some people going, hey, this is, a, this is total victory, spike the ball. And others going, this is good, but hold on a second. Um, and so the two different conversations we're having are, um, how, will Bostock, how will the Bostock ruling play out in the real world? You know, how, how will it, will states, well, you know, is it opening the door to lawsuits around the enforcement of it? And we had a similar, you know, tension, you know, there were still sodomy laws on the books, even after Lawrence v. Texas. And then the other question of, are our civil rights protections at the federal level adequate? And the, the answer to that is no. So here's what we've said in Florida. Uh, so the Bostock decision comes down and the agency that is tasked with enforcing civil rights in Florida is the Florida Commission on Human Relations. And we've worked with them year in and year out. And uh, we had been, there, there was a woman who had reached out to us long before actually the Bostock decision and said, you know, she said, I've been approached about being on the Florida Commission and I'm thinking about it, but I don't want to just sit in a chair. I don't need it for my resume. I want, I only want to do it if I can make a difference. And we're, we were like, absolutely. If you can get on that board, you can make a huge difference. We had no idea how <laughs> how real that was, but you know, I think in her, her, it was her very first commission meeting. Um, you know, the early, I think it was actually end of last year, the very first commission meeting that she, as a commissioner, she brought this measure forward and and unanimous support from the from the board, from the commission. And then the language wasn't quite clear on the website. And so she went back, I think again in January and, and said, we really need to make it clear to people that anywhere in the state of Florida, if you face discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, you absolutely have a right to pursue justice under our existing civil rights statute. And so, you know, I liken it to pushing against a door for decades and the door opens and you sort of like, what, what do we do now? You know, is, this, is this a trick? Is it a trap? And our message is no, you can walk through that door. And, and it's important that we tell people that. And it's important that they understand the origin of it and where, where those protections flow from because um, you know, virtue untested is no virtue. Rights unused are, are no rights at all. And so we want people, no matter where they live in the state, uh, to access those protections. I will say this, we've spent decades passing local ordinances um, in partnership with local other you know, organizations and local leaders. And more than 60% of the population of Florida was protected in sexual, based on sexual orientation and gender identity through local ordinances. Mm -hmm. And that whole process of having those conversations in city councils and in county commissions where people who never thought they would come out were suddenly standing in front of a microphone with their voice shaking, calling on their local elected leaders to do the right thing. And very often, the first time we would do that, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be successful. But 
we would get close enough that the people who stood on the sidelines and thought there was no way this was going to happen were suddenly like, whoa, we came so close. They were in. And the people who, um, you know, thought it was, were on the sidelines because they thought it was an obvious slam dunk, of course, they're going to do the right thing, were suddenly furious and they jump in. And so by the second year, the community has galvanized. And I say that, you know, they've, they've galvanized and they've pushed for passage. And on more than one occasion, the person who was the vote, the last, you know, the final vote against that prevented us from, from succeeding becomes the vote, becomes the person that carries it to victory. Uh, because they have now gone through this process. And sometimes what happens, it's such a cultural phenomenon, it, you know, that when you, when you do that, you even, you either win or you lose forward. You know, there were people who said, I had no idea I had LGBT people in my family. I had no idea. And when I voted the wrong way, I began to hear from people that I love about how painful what I, what I just inflicted on them. Now, of course, we all wish that it didn't have to come down to if I don't experience it personally, I have no empathy. Mm -hmm. But we know that there's a correlation between do you know somebody who's lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, and how you, what you're willing to allow to be done to them in your name. And so, you know, coming out and being out and being visible is, you know, that is part of the work as well. And I feel like you just described a lot of um, successful endeavors that it's building those concentric circles. Uh, you start with the nugget and then you move to the first round of skeptics or the first round of people who thought right. it was like, yeah, of course this is going to work. And then you just keep, and then as those people then talk to their, their networks, that circle broadens and then from there and out. And that's really, um, I think to your earlier point about how starting this at the local level also then just sort of builds up to the state level and then from the state level, hopefully builds to a federal level as well. And so you see that sort of groundswell from the populace to, yep. to the extent lawmakers feel like they need the cover, like all of a sudden they have like, look, but look at the, the people are telling me this is what they want. Yeah, I think that, you know, effective social justice, civil rights movements have in common uh, that they call a question, a fundamental question. It's sort of like, okay, we're going to sit at that lunch counter you told me I can't sit at. And we're going to make you watch how we are treated doing something as basic as this. And once you see that, you have to make a decision now. The question's been called, whose side are you on? Is this okay with you? And if it's not okay with you, what are you going to do? And so I think that that is, um, you know, just... It is why we know that the change begins when we believe that our, our lives are worth fighting for and our freedom is worth fighting for. Like the ripple effect of, of taking that stance begins before the first vote gets cast. All right, so another issue that Equality Florida is working on, um, and actually more than an issue, but certainly um, class of, of work that you are doing revolves around transgender. And so there's a, a couple of transgender initiatives um, that Equality Florida has, but I want to start, I think, with the transgender youth sports ban, um, because I feel as if this has been in the news a lot lately. Um, and I, you know, in having conversations with my friends and family, I think some of the things we wrestle with are, well, how many athletes legitimately are we talking about? Like, what is the size of this population? Um, you know, and from my own perspective, I think the argument I hear 
in favor of these bans most often is, well, you're going to be shortchanging and it's usually women from scholarship opportunities that would be able then to be them to advance their education and their and you know their futures. And so I'd, I'd love to get just some real information on this. You know, when we're talking about the transgender youth sports ban, what are we talking about? Yeah, so let's be very clear. There is no, the impetus for this sports ban in Florida is the same as it is in all 30 plus states it's been introduced. And it has nothing to do with supporting women's sports. Um, it has everything to do with polling that told conservatives that they could, uh, you know, delight their base by beating this drum. Um, in fact, the sponsors of the bills in Florida said, we've had absolutely no, no parents, no athletes have come to us and said, this is a problem at all, period. Um, in fact, in Florida, Florida has twice in the last few years led the country in the murders of trans women. Did the legislature take action on that? No, but this non-issue becomes a top priority, so much so that they bend the rules, break the rules in the 11th hour to ram it through uh, in the Senate after it was declared dead by the sponsor. So I say all of that to say, this is not a good faith um, inquiry on the issue of fairness and trans athletes. The language that was introduced um, was intended as a blanket ban. It was intended as a message that says, we're not going to allow trans athletes to exist because trans young people don't exist, period. And anything that acknowledges and uh, allows their existence to be affirmed uh, has to be done away with. In the state of Florida, there have been guidelines in place for more than a decade to strike that the balance that that reasonable people might ask well okay what about you know physiologically and what you know what are some of these issues that that might impact fairness well those guidelines have been in in place for quite some time uh, jazz jennings who's perhaps you know one of the most um, you know famous trans folk in um, in america and a floridian you know at eight years old she was banned you know she was she was yanked off of her soccer team um, because she was trans. And there's no argument for why uh, a prepubescent child should be taken from their sports team. And then you have guidelines at the collegiate and, and at the high school level that address those concerns. But if a reasonable person were saying, hey, you know, I've, I have these concerns, what you wouldn't do is say, I don't know much about this. It's not an issue that's been raised in my state, but I'm going to do everything in my power to ram through a blanket ban that allows, you know, competitors to demand gender inspections. You know, you, this is not the way that a rational person with what might, with a sincere concern would, would address this. And it's important to say that because it has never been driven by this legislature out of a sincere concern. Um, there are, I think, in the decade or so that the guidelines have been in place, 11 athletes um, who have, who have um, you know, applied, who have had those guidelines applied to them. So, so it is absolutely a, um, a political maneuver, a cruel one that targets trans youth, plays on people's ignorance and fear, um, and makes the world less safe for trans people, period. And for legislators, that is a you know Republican leadership, 
they're, they are not only indifferent to the harm, um, you know, that is a feature, not a bug in terms of feeding their extremist base. Is it easier for these bills to target youth because youth typically don't have that same level of representation? So in terms of a power structure in the state, and we'll, I guess, stick specifically with Florida, I don't mean to say that there aren't people advocating on behalf of youth, but they, they just don't have the same political power typically that an adult population would. I, I do think that they saw um, trans youth as a small and fairly politically unrepresented target. And I think they were surprised at the, um, how galvanized the opposition to this bill was. I think that's why it came very close to dying in Florida. Uh, folks in Texas just stopped it. You know, it passed in places like Mississippi and Arkansas and Alabama. And, you know, it's, it, it does speak to who Florida wants to align itself with. Um, you know, I was very proud that the Miami Heat and um, the uh, online gaming, uh, you know, misfits and other leaders in, in women's sports spoke out against this ban. In fact, the researchers that were quoted in the, in the justification for this ban by the sponsors themselves wrote a letter saying, you have twisted my words that I do not, you know, this is not uh, what my research shows and I oppose what you're doing. So again, um, sincere people raising an, a legitimate, you know, concern, let's engage, let's have that conversation. You wanna to point to Connecticut and talk about, you know, that case? Well, let's talk about the fact that the, the girl at the center of that case actually bested the transact uh, athletes multiple times and received a scholarship, you know, but that is overshadowed by appealing to people's uh, fear. And it's not, you know, it's not incidental that there's a, a racial component to this. Um, and for LGBT people overall, the idea of policing gender in this way, you know, I remember, you know, the, the ways that uh, the Williams sisters were talked about, the, 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 all of these things are are tied together. And what we do know is it's not just about whether 11 uh, young people in the state of Florida who are trans get to play sports, uh, though they ought to be able to. It is, we know that this is part of, you know, there are already bills lined up. Last year, there was a bill that would have uh, sent doctors to prison for 20 years for providing medically necessary care to trans youth. So we, we can expect to see that um, continue and escalate and broaden in scope. So, you know, we, we are fighting this in every way that we can. We hope that the governor will, will wake up the way Texas legislators did and, and, and put an end to this. You know, there's not, there's not a whole lot of indicators that he will, but hope springs eternal in this work and you never know. So we'll continue to apply that pressure. And if, if he does sign it, we will continue to work to repeal it. Um, you know, but we, we realize that we're in the midst of a, of a backlash and that they will attack whoever they think is the most vulnerable. And uh, we have to do the education and advocacy work to make it cost more to, to attack us than, than not. What does some of that advocacy work focus on? Is it about 
the mental health of students? Is it about um, how this is shifting or increasing aggression towards transgender people? Is it a discussion of suicide rates? Is it an ethics discussion? What, what, what does this advocacy center around? Right. Well, I mean, I think first and foremost is amplifying the voices of trans young people, trans athletes um, and, and teammates. You know, I mean, I think that, that the first step in attacking a community is to dehumanize and turn people into caricatures. And, you know, so first and foremost, let people tell their own stories. And, you know, I think that was, uh, you know, part of the power of, of Jazz Jennings on the national scene was America got to see her go through uh, junior high and high school. You know, they got to see her grow up and deal with what she had to deal with. And so I, I think that the most powerful voices in opposition to this here in Florida and other states have been uh, trans young people, their parents, their coaches, their teammates, um, and women athletes who are going, don't use our name and pretend that you're doing anything to help us. We, you know, you want a list of things you can do to help us? <laughs> Because this isn't on it, um, and so I I think that again I, I began by saying you know sometimes we lose the first round in those human rights ordinance fights, uh, but what makes me optimistic in this moment is I remember what it was like to fight for marriage equality, and I remember 38 states in a row um, as the as the far right was in this foot race with public opinion to 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 get these embedded in the state state constitutions, um, it was a terrible time. I mean, it was it was like a gut punch every time one of those passed, especially here in Florida. You know, the same night Barack Obama uh, became president was the night that um, Florida, six out of 10 of my neighbors went to the polls and said, I couldn't have what they have. And so, um, and you know, but, what they did was they turned a whole lot of people who never thought of themselves as activists into activists. You know, a whole lot of people who, you know, think of politics as this sort of thing that happens in Washington or Tallahassee or wherever your state capital is. And suddenly they're going, well, wait a second, I can't take care of the person I love. Our kids and the legal protections for them are in jeopardy. And just the humiliation of having your neighbors go, yeah, I don't think you can have what we get. Is, was enough to take a whole lot of people off the sidelines and, and, and cause people to call the question within their companies. Like, where are you? Are you, are you gonna speak up? And there were lots of implications because, you know, uh, especially when one state and then another began to have marriage equality and other countries began to have marriage equality, just being able to move, if you're, if you're a multinational com company, just being able to move your employees from uh, you know, say California, where they were legally married to Florida, where they weren't even recognized, they were legal strangers to each other. All of those things, you know, the, the, the far right attack set in motion a whole lot of things that they, we would not have known or anticipated that collectively began to bring marriage into, into focus. And I would argue that if the far right hadn't begun aggressively going after marriage, we might still be fighting for marriage equality now. And I mean, I say that because I think that among, you know, sort of leading national organizations, there, there hadn't been this big collective push. You had some lawsuits that popped up here and there, but I think in the sequencing of things, 
there were still a lot of voices saying, you know, marriage equality, we don't need to ape the patriarchy. That's a heterosexual institution that, you know, trades women as property. And, you know, people had a whole sort, all kinds of line, uh, you know, analyses. But for a lot of people, it's like, yeah, that's all nice, but I want to take care of the person I love. And, um, and it matters to me to be able to say, this is my wife, this is my husband. Um, and, and I'm not sure that we would have, I'm not sure that timeline would have accelerated had the far right uh, not decided to put a target on marriage and, and galvanize us in, the, in that way. So I hold out some hope that around this coordinated multi-state attack on trans young people in particular, it's gonna cause a whole lot of people who haven't really thought about it, who might begin with a, well, I mean, I don't, do they have a point in here? Is there, a, is there a, some reasonable rationale behind these bans? Can we talk about it? So like, if, you, if someone comes to me in that spirit, we can have, we can have a, a conversation because they're saying, I wanna be educated. The legislature didn't say, I wanna be educated. They said, here's a weapon, we can use it um, and we can sell it come election time. All right, so we have our first audience question and I would encourage our audience to ask their questions as we go. Um, but um, so the question is from Helena and she says 60 Minutes ran a story recently about the potential exploitation of um, trans uh, children and adults by unskilled medical professionals um, who maybe don't offer proper counseling before moving ahead with surgery. So is this something you're also navigating, trying to figure out how to balance health safety with transgender rights? Um, well, you know, I would say that, you know, the response to the 60 Minutes piece was, you know, more about the voices that were missing from that conversation than the ones that were included. Uh, if somebody wants to say, I wanna, I wanna do something about unethical, uh, healthcare practitioners. I think everybody would agree that unethical healthcare practitioners ought not be able to, to do harm. But, uh, but again, it's a, uh, the sensationalization of, of the issue and the absence of voices uh, within the trans community in the 60 Minutes piece, I think, is, is part of the problem. And, you know, I would encourage you to, to dedicate an entire you know, segment an entire show uh, to trans adults, children, and parents. Um, you know, to to speak to these because I think that there's there is so much. Um, you know, people are fearful of things they don't know and things they don't understand. Um, but all of the same sort of uh, arguments that are attacks on the trans community, we've seen attacking the lesbian, gay, and bisexual community. I remember watching S Senator Sam Nunn hold a ruler on a, a submarine to show the distance between bunks, you know, by way of arguing that a straight guy should not have to share space. I'm not sure what he was implying, you know, like what happens, you know, <laughs> but anyway, but you know, the, the idea that, that uh, gay and lesbian people should not be able to share restrooms or showers and there should be segregation. All of these things were part of a way of talking about our community um, that appeal to ignorance and fear. Now you don't hear anybody saying, oh, I'm not sure that lesbians should be able to shower at the gym. You know, it's just like not even part of the conversation. Gay people in the military 
uh, even under Trump, he didn't, he didn't try to rescind the ability of gay people to serve, but he did go after the transgender community. And so we can't, uh, the fact that they are targeting who they think the, the general public is less, has less knowledge of, less empathy for, who they perceive to have less political power is a strategic maneuver. Um, and, and every victory that they have on that front empowers them to continue. So, you know, absolutely in solidarity with the trans community, but also very aware that when they sharpen their blade against the, the lives of trans youth, we know where those swords are gonna be pointed. All right, I want to talk a little bit about the HIV health advocacy that Equality Florida is doing. You mentioned HIV earlier and Florida, I think is the leading state in new transmissions if I did my research correctly. Um, and I confess, you know, again, grew up growing up as a child of the 80s and 90s, I feel like HIV education and HIV stories were really prevalent. We heard about them all the time. Um, but I can't honestly say the last time I heard anything about it or, or heard that it was really still a significant issue. Um, and so I'm curious about the HIV modernization movement and the work that Equality Florida is doing. Well, Florida's um, laws on HIV uh, criminalization are rooted in, in um, again, ignorance and fear. They're decades old. They don't recognize the science. They don't understand that uh, undetectable is untransmittable. You know, it, it, and so you have a fear-based model that says, you know, if you are HIV positive and you have sex with somebody that you could, you can face jail time, significant jail time. And so the, the argument that we have made is you, you are criminalizing a, a scenario where nobody was at risk and you are discouraging people from knowing their status. Because if you don't know your status, then you can't uh, fall, you know, you be held accountable, you know, you can't be you're right. And, and we know that knowing your status is so important to seeking treatment and managing what can be a, a, a chronic but manageable um, condition. And so it is so so part of it is let's let's do away with a sort of draconian laws based in decades old um, fear. And let's have a modern law based in current science. Um, that creates appropriate accountability, but also doesn't, um, you know, threaten to criminalize people who've done no one any harm and, and never put anybody at risk. Um, and at the same time, let's do something to address systemically the the astronomical transmission rate in the state of Florida. And so, you know, what is clear is that stigma remains around HIV. That um, and you know, is exemplified by by our our um, criminalization laws. But even more than that, how we talk about it. I was talking to a pastor um, of a black church quite recently, and we're trying to have these conversations about sexuality, a healthy sexuality, um, and how to bring how to have those conversations in environments that have heterosexual, you know, gay and bisexual people all together talking about you know, this sort of 
repressed, sexually repressed world where, because no one's talking about it, we're allowing young people not to learn any of the lessons of, of uh, you know, their elders around uh, a safe and healthy sexuality. And so I think it's important, you know, I think that the black church coming, you know, because disproportionately these are black and brown um, young men who we are seeing this staggering um, transmission rate. But we've got to normalize healthy conversations about sexuality and um, not have shame and um, stigma prevent people from getting the access to the information they need to keep themselves um, healthy and to stop transmission. And if they, um, if they need access to the healthcare system, that they're not afraid or ashamed or stigmatized for seeking treatment. And so, you know, it's not just one thing, it's, it's a, an entire ecosystem that discourages people from speaking honestly, taking care of themselves sexually, and seeking treatment if they need it. And we've got to disentangle all of that. Oh, that sounds like, you know, yeah. <laughs> a weekend's worth conversation you should That's be talking. <laughs> but I'm glad that it's happening in the Black church and I'm glad it's happening, not just in the Black church, but within uh, those concentric circles of leadership that has often uh, remained silent or hasn't stepped as thoroughly into that space as it ought to. Well, that's great that you're seeing increased, I guess I would call that community support in terms of this rec a recognition that this is impacting these specific individuals, but impacting the community and the larger society as well. So that I actually find some comfort in that, that the conversation is broadening to include those. Mm -hmm. All right, the last, um, issue that Equality Florida that I think we have time to touch on because uh, we are approaching our, our 10 minute warning um, is uh, the gun violence protection uh, that you all are working on. And I, while I don't know that this is specific to Equality Florida, I am mindful of we're just shy of the five year anniversary of the shooting at the Pulse nightclub. Um, which was not only uh, an attack against LGBTQ people, but specifically um, Latina, Latinx, um, LGBTQ uh, people. And so did the gun violence protection work that you all are doing sort of originate then? Is it something that has been an issue uh, for Equality Florida for longer than that? Um, and then I'd love to talk a little bit about some of the statistics about hate crimes against LGBTQ people? Well, I will say this. Uh, if, if we spoke up on gun violence, it was episodic. You know, it, we might be in coalitions where gun violence was part of the conversation. But what Pulse caused us to do was not just, not only react to the, this horrific um, tragedy in our midst, but to reflect on what, who gun violence was disproportionately targeted at. And what we came to discover was that LGBTQ people were disproportionately um, dying at, in, at the hands of gun violence. And that, um, and that it was an issue that ran much, much deeper than, than perhaps our cursory 
you know, um, engagement uh, really, you know, we, it warranted more than what we had been doing. And so we, uh, you know, Pulse was, it was, a, it was a turning point in a couple of ways. One, it got us focused on how to support the, the families uh, and the survivor, the families of those killed and the survivors. And I remember we, you know, there was a moment of sort of like, have we, have we uh, talked about it gets better so much that we actually have not addressed the fact that, that the, you know, the stigma and the animus directed towards us too often, uh, you know, shows itself as, as lethal violence. And that, and that we really, you know, have an obligation to confront this. And where does it come from? Where, where's, what's the origin of, of this um, idea, you know, that, that our lives are, are not just expendable, but I remember there was a movie, a documentary on, on people who were in prison for anti-gay violence. And the most chilling, it was called uh, License to Kill. And I remember the most chilling thing about it was how every one of them said, they thought they were doing society a favor, that they thought they would be praised because the messaging about who gay people are was so inflammatory, you know, sexual predators, you know, dangerous to children, all of these sort of messages. Um, and so we asked ourselves, you know, what are we missing? Where, how do we uproot this at the source? And, you know, one of the things that we said was, you know, the, the CDC tells us there are three things that influence our trajectory. One of them is our, the families that we're born into. That's the roll of the dice. Um, the atmosphere, you know, the messages we receive in our religious, uh, if, we, if we're part of a religious community. And then the third one uh, was schools. And, and for us, it was sort of, our schools are the one sort of shared experience. We all don't have the same family, we all don't have the same religion, but we all have this experience of, of socialization through our schools. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, I began by talking about the message I got, you know, very early that I was not supposed to exist. And not only did I get that message, but every straight kid in that school got the same message, right? And and so where do the bullies come from? And and the bullies become the person that, you know, beats somebody up on campus, becomes somebody who is willing to fire or deny employment to someone. So if we wanted to sort of address the internalized homophobia that so much of us grew up with or transphobia that so many, so many of us grew up with, and we wanted to address the, the bullying and the discrimination, we said, we, we have to go to where we learned it. And we have to talk about schools and not just the standard that says, we wanna create schools where you're not you know, physically attacked and psychologically tortured, we want to talk about how we create schools where you can be yourself and you can thrive. And so one of our post-pulse promises was, uh, from, from one of our post-pulse promises emerged our safe and healthy schools work. How do we create safe learning environments so that people can be their authentic selves without fear, not only without fear of harassment, violence, and you know psychological torture, but where you can really, you know, blossom the way every student ought to be able to. Okay. 
All right, so a couple of wrap up questions so we can also have our audience see if they have any questions before we get to the lightning round. Okay. Um, so um, what do you wish people were paying more attention to? I wish people were paying more attention to the dismantling of our democracy that is unfolding right now. You know, the organizing premise of Equality Florida and many education advocacy groups is through communication and understanding, we get to a place where, you know, you can see the humanity in me, I can see the humanity in you, and you won't therefore allow awful things to be done, right? And if you change hearts and minds, you change the voting electorate and the electorate changes who represents us and they will reflect those values. But we are witnessing just, you know, um, a horrific slate of voter suppression laws, of <clears throat> infringement on First Amendment rights, and, and um, you know, the, what's happening on the electoral front you know, we came very close to a coup, and I'm not just talking about the violent attack on the Capitol January 6th, but the phone calls to reverse votes in Georgia and Arizona and other places, we have to take very, very seriously that this is an assault on democracy that is being aided by Russia for sure, but other actors that don't have, other international actors who don't have American democracy uh, as, as something that they care about. And I think that it is happening in a way that our normalcy bias uh, makes us all want to not believe what we're seeing. You know, we are, but we are currently being boiled one degree at a time um, in, a, in an arena where, uh, you know, where the, the armed attack on our capital in January 6th is being described as a rambunctious tourist event. I want more people paying attention to that. Okay. When we're talking about LGBTQ equity, what are the biggest priorities to help close those gaps or to address those challenges? Um, again, I would say uh, safe and healthy schools is a, you know, is a huge priority. And then in, among those three other categories, you know, talking about schools and homes, I think that more resources to parents, you know, is our, our homes, you know, there's a, there's a project called the Family Acceptance uh, Project that, that helps parents, even those who are, because of their religious or cultural backgrounds, not accepting of LGBT uh, Q people <clears throat> navigate how they can maintain a respectful relationship with their child so that they don't um, create a scenario where that child is self-medicating, suicidal, or becomes one of the staggering homeless statistics. And, and it's really powerful work. It's difficult work. It's, you know, but um, I can tell you that when I travel and I speak on college campuses, even if they brought me there ostensibly to talk about politics or legislation, what the conversations really come down to is I, I want to talk about my, my parents. They're having a difficulty with this or they're not letting me come home or they've told me I can come home, but I can't bring my boyfriend on. You know, uh, we want to maintain relationships with our families. And many of us have gone through a whole lot to, to uh, you know, my father, when I came out to him, that was the last day I lived under his roof. I was a teenager. And 
flat, you know, fast forward, my father ended up doing a, a, a commercial for marriage equality, you know? And so people that meet my dad now, they're like, your dad is so great. He's such a champion. I'm like, yeah, it wasn't always like that. But that journey is a journey that, um, you know, Family Acceptance Project can help help families, uh, you know, has, has developed a model for helping families navigate. And then within faith communities, it's that same dynamic. Um, you know, you, uh, there are people who are doing great harm to kids, unaware that they're doing great harm to kids. And when you're able to reach them um, where they are and, and come to the common ground that at the end of the day, we want every child that, that is part of this community um, to survive and to thrive. And there are some things that you can do to make that possible. Um, more often than not, they're they are grateful for that information. So I think that, you know, some of the most important work is making sure that we get closer to a world where a child born today doesn't even understand the concept of the closet. The closet is like, what, what do you mean? What is, what is that? You know, um, can have a crush without every adult in their life, you know, asking a young girl if she's got a boyfriend yet, asking, you know, with the assumptions they just get to be who they who they thoroughly are. Okay. All right, in our final two minutes, this is why we call it the lightning round because it always comes down to the last two minutes. What progress do you hope to see in the next year? Um, in the next year, I hope to see a um, the business community step up more more aggressively in pushing back against these anti-democratic. Um, uh, efforts in, in legislatures, I, I, I look forward to seeing a groundswell of activism in response to these anti-trans attacks. And I think mo most of all, um, I think that a deep investment in mobilizing pro-equality voters, which is a, a universe of voters who actually cross party lines are increasingly part of the fastest growing um, voter demographic, which is no party affiliates are moved by this issue, grew up fighting this issue and will turn out when candidates and campaigns speak to this issue. So I, I, uh, I see those as the areas of, of a great deal of energy uh, over the next year. Okay. What gives you hope that progress will be made? Um, what gives me hope is the um, young people are turning out to vote in higher numbers, are, are occupying more leadership space, are, um, are impatient uh, for that change in that world and are not calcified in the thinking because they, you know, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, you haven't gone through what I've gone through. Well, that's true. And therefore I can imagine things that you couldn't imagine. Okay. Who else is doing good work to make progress? Um, oh, there's a lot of a lot of folks doing good work. I think um, a lot of it is grassroots organizations. There's some trans-led organizations at the local level. You know, Transaction is sort of a hub through which you know those organizations network. Um, National Black Justice Coalition. There's there's a ton of organizations doing terrific work. And we'd like to leave our audience with something to read or watch or listen to so they can educate themselves more or just people you think are talking about this in an interesting way. So any thoughts on 
books or authors, podcasts, thinkers that we should be tuning into? Um, Audre Lorde, read anything by Audre Lorde. And then I would say, I referenced it earlier, Suzanne Farr's Homophobia, Weapon of Sexism is just one of those you know, foundational books that you, you gotta wrap your head around. Okay. And Nadine, thank you so much for being with us today and challenging us. We know that these conversations never really end uh, and there's always more work to do. And we really appreciate you contributing your voice to our education and our conversation. Thank you. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's producer is Nicole Gustafson. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center a series of Facebook Live events produced by the Jackson Center, whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, The Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, Remember to subscribe and share with your friends. Thank you. CHQ Assembly is made possible through the collaboration and innovation of Chautauqua Institution's full-time and part-time staff, seasonal staff, and many volunteers, as well as participants like you, whose engagement, gifts, and subscriptions sustain our mission.